Hey, it's Pretty Little Grown Men. Hi. Hi, Dave. Hey, Dom. How are you? I'm doing very well. We have uh, some cold beer by our side. We're sitting in my basement. That, uh, luckily, does not smell like cat poop. Not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> uh, I've used Febreze and some incense. Well, this is what you get when you move the litter box eight feet away from where where the previous location was yeah. cats got cats struggle with that my cat is 13 years old so yeah she's she's i don't think she has the uh sense of smell uh that she once did yeah i i not her fault yeah well I wouldn't blame her maybe I, a little bit we have to heat up her food um so that it uh so that it has a more pungent smell to it mm-hmm um, and then you have to basically sit her next to the food and just kind of like, like hit the table yeah. or hit the, hit the, hit the stairs so that she can like know that it's in front of her oh, Okay. and stick her head next to it. So oh. it's like, okay, now you, now you know there's food there. Oh, okay. So it makes sense that she would have a litter box struggle. Yeah. She's a, she's a wonky little cat. Anyway. Well, uh, we have a few topics that we may get into this week. Uh, we saw Captain America Civil War. Uh, we did. There's a new Radiohead album out. Yeah. And um, uh, Game of Thrones has been going for a few weeks Game as well. Game of Thrones has been happening, murdering people. Yeah. Uh, death and... The use. <laughs> graphic, disgusting violence. Visions of the past. Um, hey, let's do something new before we get into any of that. Yeah. Let's do fake sponsors. Okay. We're, uh, we're drinking two different beers right now um they came out of my fridge uh dave what are you drinking this is a full sale blood orange wheat ale uh it's pretty nice full sales down in uh hood river oregon they make a lot of pretty good pretty solid session beers including their so-called session Mm -hmm. yeah uh yeah they're they're kind of a they're one of the first beers that i uh, local beers that i had when i moved here they've been around for a while um they just underwent a pretty uh, substantial redesign of their whole aesthetic, and I think it might be because someone bought them. I'm not sure who. Oh, okay. But I think that's the case. Um, still a fan of their IPA. I think it's it's one of the it's one of my go tos, as I mentioned on this podcast before. Very drinkable. Not too hoppy. If you're if you're not like a super hophead. I think that the full sale IPA is one of the ways you can go. I don't know what kind of distribution they have, but isn't that why anyone buys, why anyone sells their microbrewery anyway? Well, that and distribution purposes. That and a billion dollars is usually, yeah. Yeah. Pretty good reason. (laughs) But I know with some of these deals, you know, like um, the brewers at Elysian, a lot of people voted against it and uh, when they were going to get bought out Mm -hmm. and just lost the vote. And so. Uh, we were in Seattle a couple weeks ago, and um, you know one of those guys has started a new brewery somewhere. And oh. check that out! And I can't remember the name, uh, but really good beer and creative. And you know, so it's not that these it's not that these breweries. It's not like everyone is looking to cash in. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the times the founders have taken on investors, and then they're put in this situation where they get stuck. You know, mm-hmm. I'm sure they're not mad right. about getting handed multiple millions of dollars to go start their new brewery, but uh, I think there is like a, an exodus of talent from a lot of these places. Yeah, yeah, and I and I I mean, 
I think that it's I appreciate when a when a brewery like Ten Barrel, you know, and they were really really popular, um, which is why I'm sure they caught the attention of. Um, I think it's I think Anheuser Busch bought them, but it makes sense from. It makes sense that they would say, "Listen, fans of of us, uh, nothing's going to change. It just means that you're going to see our beer in other states." Um, which I don't know if I've really seen that kind of expansion yet. But uh, they they say, you know, the 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 recipe's not going to change, and we're going to apparently retain our same brewmaster. Um, but I find it hard to believe that that's possible. Right. Well, you know, it's almost like a band signing to a major label or whatever. But it's like with beer, if you have to up the production, then it tends to mean that you do have to change the recipe because right. you can't use the same small batch ingredients or whatever it is. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. None of my favorite breweries have been bought. Um, so this this stuff hasn't really – and there's <laughs> so many to choose from in Oregon. So it hasn't really impacted um, – any of my favorites yet, but I, I definitely understand why people are concerned about these things happening yeah. for, for the same reasons, you know, indie rockers should be concerned about people signing to major labels and suddenly getting a glossy new sound, all that kind of stuff. Um, the beer that I'm drinking is one that I've, I've drank before while recording this podcast. It is from Pelican Brewing Company. It's their single hop IPA. Um, the Umbrella IPA. The Pelican is out of Tillamook, Oregon, which, as we said before, also has Tillamook cheese, which is delicious, 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 delicious t- cheese. Um, so, uh, the, those are our fake sponsors. If you are, you want to be a real sponsor, you should contact us, and we'll we will make talking about beer more of a part of this podcast. Or kombucha. Or kombucha, yeah. Beverage sponsors. Yeah, I mean, really, if if like if Sprite came to us, you know, we'd go all full Vince Staples on the shit and just fucking talk about Sprite, whatever. I'm down with Sprite. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, Sprite's better than Mountain Dew. That's true. Are they owned by the same? Sprite's Coke, right? Yes. Yeah, Mountain Dew might be Pepsi. I really don't know. I'm not a Mountain Dew connoisseur. Yeah, nor am I, because it's greenish poison <laughs> right you know speaking of greenish poison uh i heard that ecto cooler the high c with slime around the do you, did you drink that when you were a kid oh yeah it's coming back right it's coming back yeah yeah everything 90s is coming back again well also in time for the the ghostbusters review. oh that's true i'm uh, down i'm down with i'm down with all this nostalgia yeah i'm not bothered know, by it <clears throat> no i mean n- not as long as not as long as what's being brought back is done with uh, with with quality, with a, like a refreshing sense of quality. Like I like the idea that Ghostbusters is coming back, but it's being reimagined in a very different way. Right. Not only because it's all women now, but because it's you know it's it's going to be done in a big budget way. Well, moderate budget for a comedy movie, you know. But right. um, you know, in a modern setting, because I I like Ghostbusters just as much as the next person. I, it's not one of my favorite movies. Like some people are obsessed with it, but um. It, I, I'll go out on a limb. Hot take time. Hot take for a movie that's twenty five years old, uh, or thirty years old maybe. Um, yeah, I think like eighty four ish, eighty five. Yeah, pretty goddamn old. Yeah, just like us. Yeah. 
that Ghostbusters is a little dated when you watch it. It's a little, it sure. a little dated. Um, I still enjoy it very much. And, and contrary to what a lot of people think, I also very much like Ghostbusters 2. And in fact, I grew up with Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters 2 is great. Yeah. It's, I mean, uh, it's, really it's funny. mad silly. Yeah. But it's still awesome. Uh-huh. Yeah, I feel I feel bad for Winston. He he gets his role gets a little relegated to the sidelines, but you know what are you gonna do? Vigo, it's got Vigo in it. Yeah, that shit's hilarious. Um, okay, so uh, we watched. So Dave Dave recently th- turned thirty one. Yeah, and uh, in celebration of Dave's birthday, we well first I had to watch uh, Avengers: Age of Ultron. Right. Watched that last week. Uh, so we watched that on Wednesday, and then on Thursday we went and saw Captain America: Civil War. Yeah, uh, and so it was a it was a big two days of Marvel movies. Um, I really liked watching them next to each other because it's very easy to compare the two, especially considering that uh, the new Captain America is basically just Marvel. Or is just basically Avengers three, um, right? And so it's. It, I think it was useful to compare the directorial style of Joss Whedon with the directorial style of the Russo brothers. Right, and and also to go direct from the introduction of Vision mm-hmm. in Age of Ultron into how he's characterized in this movie, which was a real open question to me, much more than how they were going to present Spider-Man or some of the other things that you know we knew were coming. Um, cause he comes out of Ultron as like this extremely powerful character who's worthy enough to, to hoist Thor's hammer. He has the mind gem, one of the infinity stones. So you're wondering at the end of that movie, how does, why is this guy going to like hang out with the rest of the Avengers? You know, mm-hmm. why, why wouldn't he like, he's basically godlike. Why wouldn't he just fly off into space? Like, you know, the character in Watchmen who decides he's not going to, doesn't want to mess around with earth anymore, Yeah, you know? And I thought it was really cool that Captain America gave him like a data on Star Trek sort of role where he is trying to understand humanity and become more human himself. He wants to be a people. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So I thought that was a very, I thought they handled him. That was really one of the high points in the movie for me, the way they handled him. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, wearing uh, wearing some J. Crew outfits. Yeah, yeah, some nice sweaters. Yeah, he was looking nice. That was great. Um, I th- I think probably Paul Bettany's best role could be. I mean, it's a great role. Yeah, I mean, and he's really he's kind of perfect for it. Um, and the only other times we've seen Paul Bettany, um, some priest related roles, more than one. He was the titular priest in the movie Priest. Do you ever see that movie? No. Um, it is a about it's a post apocalyptic movie where post apocalyptic movie set in an alternate universe where basically um, vamp vampires are t- vampires take over the wasteland outside of this city compound and it's up to priests to fight the vampires, but priests are like more more like super soldiers as far as like fighting the vampires. So they're they're all they're like religious but they're also like the the, the Catholic Church like basically stepped in to sort of be the defenders of mankind. That sounds pretty rad. I was going to say 
it sounds like it could either be a very dark Oscar drama or it could be like a B B level weird sci fi movie. It's a B level weird sci fi movie. That's awesome. Um, Paul Bettany, like he he doesn't have to act that hard. He just has he can just like be Paul Bettany. I mean, you've all we've also seen him in the Da Vinci Code or the the one after the Da Vinci Code, Angels and Demons. Mm-hmm. Um, he plays an albino like assassin priest or something. Uh, and he was on Lost. What did he do on Lost? I don't. I know he was on Lost. I don't remember what he did. Okay, I believe you. Um, I can't remember. And he was also in Mordecai, which I never saw. Yeah, I skipped that one. So uh, this is probably it. This is probably the, yeah, so this is probably the role Bettany's of a lifetime. Role. I mean, consider, like, if you're Paul Bettany, listen, this, is, this is what this guy's got going on for him. Uh, he's never really been in any sort of Oscar-winning stuff, but he's got steady work. Now he's in a franchise where he basically can, like, just he's set for life. Um, and he's married to Jennifer Connelly. So I think that Paul Bettany's got his, his life pretty set right now. Sounds great. <laughs> sounds great. You know, I think when these Marvel movies were first getting started before Marvel was bought out by Disney, it there was it seemed like there was more grousing from the actors about the pay and the experiences and so on. Mm-hmm. And now it seems like everyone's very interested to get on board the Marvel train and it's I'm maybe the pay's better, maybe it's the idea of being in a movie that you know millions of people will watch, mm-hmm. you know. That has to elevate your career, and they're respected too. I mean, it's not considered; it's not like Jurassic Park three, right? Or or four, whatever. Jurassic World, sorry, yeah. four. Yeah, um, four. you know, they're not considered. It's not considered like slumming uh, to be in one of these movies, mm-hmm. as far as I could tell. Well, it's crazy. I I was so Captain America: Civil War is now it had it. It's the fifth highest opening weekend ever. Um. Five of the top six highest opening movies ever are all Disney properties. That's really wild. So it's Avengers, Avengers Age of Ultron, Captain America Civil War, Star Wars. Um, one is, I think, a Harry Potter movie, maybe. Okay. And then yeah, I mean, something else. Disney but. right now is insane because they have the Star Wars franchises. They have the Marvel franchises. They have their, you know, Jungle Book and all the whatever the fantasy stuff they're doing and Pixar. Mm-hmm. So it's just like insane. It's insane. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a all in. And, and, you know, John Favreau, like that guy's a gold mine because Jungle Book already. Uh, it was a total success. And already they're planning for a sequel. They're planning for a sequel like before that movie even came out. They knew what was going to happen. Two Jungle, two Book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> jungle book two hyper jungle yeah um the uh yeah disney like disney is basically just like uh you know i think that they have the tarzan movie coming out they're basically doing these like live action remakes of all of their movies right um all of their old cartoon movies so they have cinderella that came out uh i think tarzan is a disney movie the one that's coming out this summer with uh sexy tarzan with with the uh, yeah Super sexy Tarzan, uh, and then um, uh, there was talk about Winnie the Pooh, the live action Winnie the Pooh being done by um, uh, Alex Ross Perry. Wow, which I think would be pretty awesome. Man, I don't know if I could deal with like a CGI Winnie the Pooh. I could deal with like a cool stop motion Winnie the Pooh. Mm-hmm. 
but yeah, I don't know. It seems like it would be too much like one of the Ted movies. Yeah, I mean the the thing about it is or like peanuts or something. So the, Disney announced its slate of upcoming movies as far as its like live action remakes go, and um, you know it's like Jungle Book two, uh, some other shit that I'm not remembering. Uh, but Winnie the Pooh wasn't in there, which makes me kind of feel like it, it might be too good to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, like, or that, like, you know, they hired Alex Ross Perry, who is an incredibly talented director. But the biggest movie he's had so far was when he put out, uh, well, he put out uh, Listen Up, Philip and Queen of Earth. Right. Which, did, which were loved by critics and did well considering how small they were. Yeah, but very tiny movies. Yeah, but they're really tiny movies. But that's been a technique that Marvel has really used. Outside of uh, Kenneth uh, Branagh doing Thor, mm-hmm. um, they've brought in these these smaller filmmakers, uh, people who have done indie movies or directed Game of Thrones episodes, or in the case of the Russo brothers who did this movie and uh, Captain America: Winter Soldier. I didn't realize this, but they'd done like Arrested Development episodes. Yeah, and yeah, they were TV directors. That sensibility comes through much more in this movie, which actually which actually has some humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mostly via Spider-Man and Ant-Man. Yeah. Uh, and a little Tony, I guess. But that feeling was not in Winter Soldier at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I saw Winter Soldier. I've only seen it once, and I had to pee in the middle of the movie, <laughs> so I did miss like a good five minutes of it. Yeah. But I did not think that was really a good movie. I thought the 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 action was not shot in a particularly colorful it felt not comic booky to me like it wanted to be a 70s spy thriller yeah, it wasn't a comic book movie yeah yeah it felt it wanted to be a political thriller and it was mm-hmm. and i thought it wasn't a particularly intriguing one given that the final battle kind of replicates the helicarrier fight uh which was way more spectacular in avengers uh and just all the twists are pretty predictable, and mm-hmm. you know, it just didn't feel like it's like okay, here's the Marvel, here's like a very cliche Marvel version of this genre, which was just not what I wanted from it, from Captain America at all. After like the wonderful like World War II pageantry and nostalgia of the first movie, yeah. which I thought was actually incredible, and was not expecting to like so much. Well, yeah, I have you know, I have two thoughts about about that, and one is that. Um, you know, I feel like I, I really enjoyed The Winter Soldier, um, and I also, I think I fell asleep for like 20 minutes of it, so uh, I might have missed something. So maybe we saw different parts. <laughs> yeah, but what I really enjoyed about it, I think this is, and I think this is indicative of a, what a lot of people are looking for that came to a, that that came to a head with Batman Batman v Superman, which is the people don't necessarily want comic book movies. They want superhero movies. Right. Well, I want comic book movies. Right. And yes, certainly like not everyone. I posted like a ranking of all my Marvel movies Mm -hmm. after I saw after we saw Civil War. And I think I'm. Like, the only person or one of a very small minority who thought, like, Iron Man 2 was really great and better than 1, and I think better than 3, um, and thought Winter Soldier was bad. Mm-hmm. Everyone thinks Winter Soldier is, like, one of the best movies yeah. that Marvel's done. But it's not a comic book movie. But it's not a comic book movie. Yeah. 
Um, and I thought Iron Man 2, I don't know why people don't like Iron Man 2. I guess people thought like Black Widow was lame, like didn't get enough to do, um, even though she gets as much as she does in all the other movies. Was was that was that when they introduced Scarlett Johansson? Yes. Oh, okay. I don't I barely remember Iron Man 2. Yeah. I remember uh Mickey Rourke was in it. Right. And people didn't like his villain, who I thought was like a perfectly silly comic book villain. Oh yeah. For sure. I thought it was a great I've seen you know, I've seen it like three or four times now. Mm-hmm. I think it's an incredible comic book movie. Mm-hmm. I'm not I I really you know, usually when someone explains why they don't like something, I okay, I can understand it. But I really cannot understand having seen it several times, like why am I seeing this thing that seems like a perfectly competent movie that everyone else thought was bad? Yeah. You know? Well, I think that's why we're why we're starting to see these sort of weird distinctions. Um because, you know, Batman v Superman is it's not a comic book movie, it's a graphic novel movie. Sure, it's like for grown-ups. Yeah. It's very but, serious. But it's it, it is missing all of the things that a comic book based thing should have, which is, you know, I mean, you read more comic books than I did as a kid. I sure. I read plenty, but um I mean, I read usually like I didn't read as many superhero comic books. I read a lot of like Ren and Stimpy and X-Files and stuff like that. Um, but I read a lot of comic books. And I, what I what I always liked is, you know, it's colorful. It's incredibly dynamic. Um, it's brief. It's uh, it's splashy. It's kind of garish. It's, it's over the top. Yeah, it's not afraid to be silly. Right. It's not afraid to be, like, ridiculous. But at the same time, it tackles, like, big themes. Right, right. Um, and, and I think, like... Yeah. With superhero comics, you know, I mean, there is like the so the the like capsule history of superhero comics is like Captain America and some of these characters and Superman existed in the 40s and so on. Um, And everything really exploded in the Silver Age in the 60s when um, DC had the Justice League, Marvel created Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and the Avengers and X-Men and all of these unbelievable Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko creations and those were very like those are comics that you can still read now and they're timeless but they're very like melodramatic um because you have this like wild cosmic jack kirby art mm-hmm. um which is like super uh muscular and detailed and um he's interested you know especially the fantastic four stuff you know when he, they get out into space and they're fighting galactus and all this stuff it's very huge mm-hmm. it really pops uh, and Stan is writing in all this wonderful 60s slang. It's all very hip. You know, it's written for a, a young audience. It's not written for, like, grizzled 40-something guys who who are used to reading, like, pulp detective novels or something. Right. You know? Um, and the big change, as far as I'm aware, is in the 80s when, you know, new creators started coming in and reinventing these characters, and you have Dark Knight Returns, and you yeah. had John Byrne doing... Um, Superman and you know I mean of course you would reach a point where these characters would have to grow up and they all went through we went through like the the Batman TV show which sort of ruined Batman for a while made him too corny too cartoony mm-hmm. um, so I think comics you know have really gone back and forth and now I think in the modern world you have really all kinds of things um, you have things you, are that you are talking about the, ba- the Batman uh, where Mark Hamill plays the Joker? No, no, no. The old, the old Adam West live oh, action show. Oh, yeah. Which, I was going to say the 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 com or the cartoon that you and I grew up with. 
a little bit more serious. That was, yeah, that was, yeah. I mean, that, that's an awesome cartoon. Yeah. And I feel like that sort of middle ground, because things were like mainstream comics were very grim and gritty in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Like even Spider-Man, you know, the character like Venom and Carnage get introduced who are like yeah. the the most devastating of his villains. There's this whole beware the rage of a desperate man arc where he's like really pissed off for a long time. Uh, and then it gets into the clone saga and then things sort of get weird again. Uh, and a little bit more things get, I don't know. He, he's gone back and forth, but you know, the impact of the eighties comics and the, the growing up and the darker stuff, you know, never really, that impact is still being felt for sure in the comics. Um, Although I think a lot of stuff has the feeling of that Batman animated show where it's like a middle ground where it's intended for a younger audience, but it's not afraid to kill off characters or have darker themes or, or mm-hmm. whatever. Right. So, and I think these Marvel movies are kind of in a similar place for the most part where, you know, they're not R rated movies. They don't have any interest in being that mm-hmm. it's something you can take, to, you can take your kid to. It's something that you, I think probably I'm the target audience as someone who is catching all these references and who wants to see these. I'm just happy to see these characters doing stuff on screen. I prefer it be interesting, exciting stuff, which it is. Um, but even if these movies were pretty mediocre, I would enjoy them. Yeah. Uh, I I think this was one of the better ones though. I think this was like Civil War to me was the best one since Avengers, and I think Avengers is you know as good as any movie I've ever seen. Yeah. As far as I'm personally concerned. Right. Right. Well, because it, it it fulfills everything that you want out of m- movies. Right. You know. Right. Personally, you know. And I do think there is still you know there I was talking about this on Twitter how I was complaining about one of the the New York Times A O Scott review. Of Captain America. And, you know, he's a wonderful critic, thoughtful guy. And I was, I uh, screen grabbed one of the quotes Mm -hmm. from his review where he was talking about, like, he wasn't going to do the homework for you of, like, explaining all the backstory of all these characters. And he doesn't have to because you shouldn't go see this movie unless you've seen all the others. It won't make any sense. Right. It's not really intended to be seen alone. Um, But, you know, it was a very patronizing way to say it. And he didn't really like the action, and he was like, gave it a positive review while being as like standoffish toward it as he possibly could. Yeah, like a bunch of backhanded compliments. Exactly. Um, you know, that's and that's kind of something where, um, I'm 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 kind of fascinated by the popularity of something like this, where, um, the where the Sorry, I'm totally distracted. Oh, thank you. I told you I was going to wait for it. <laughs> um, I just got some food. My dinner. Thank you, darling. Um, where the the trying to the trying to sort of uh, get both sides of the aisle. The adults who are looking for mature, complex um, entertainment and appealing to a wider audience the pg-13 crowd right where because you have you have shows on netflix that are intended only for adults right um that i think are on that level rewarding uh Two adults who pay attention because right. they have complicated. I mean, especially Jessica Jones, complicated themes. Daredevil is a bit more just ultra violent, and that's it. Um, 
which I, I know we've talked about Daredevil before, but I like I'm still astounded by the the degree of violence on that TV show. Right. Um, it earns its TV MA rating, uh, but. I wonder if, like, if you're, say you're, like, an eight-year-old kid, and right. this is, like, you you are you are the prime audience for all of the merchandise, all of the toys. I think, I don't think they are the prime audience. I think it's 30s, I think it's people like me. But, and that's, that's what blows my mind, because it's, like, if you're an eight-year-old kid, like, yeah. this is the kind of movie that you'd be like, oh, my God, please take me to this movie. Right. Um, but I can't imagine, first of all, you've you've been alive like you'd have to watch all these movies that were made but even before you were alive totally in order to be able to know what's going on well and then you sort of thought like even like watching captain america i was just like this is some complicated plotting like there's a lot of shit going on right i i i will say in civil war's credit um that it was much easier to follow than ultron and it did a better job of balancing all of these characters and giving almost all of them a pretty strong arc and enough to do and a feeling that it was worthwhile for them to be in the movie. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's called captain America, but I think really the, the emotional heart of it is uh, Tony Stark and Iron Man. Um, Oh yeah, for sure. And he's, you know, he actually, you know, speaking about bringing in more mature themes and darkness and so on. I mean, Okay, so there's spoilers coming, but he basically has separated from uh, Pepper Potts. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is like grappling with international diplomacy uh, so he can try to win her back and maintain the Avengers and his superhero career mm-hmm. by. Uh, uh, because one of the things at the beginning of this movie that I thought was not confusing, but okay, how are you going to justify this, was Tony Stark saying, okay, after all these these disasters and casualties and civilians, we need to sign up with the UN and have some oversight, and they'll send us in and be our bosses. So it's not just, you know, us as U.S. nationals roaming around the world doing superhero things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Captain America is the one who says, no, I don't want to do that. And he's the guy who's supposed to be the good soldier. So it feels really strange and subversive if if you're watching it, sort of this movie alone. But I thought about it a little more. And I think one of the things that you do get out of Winter Soldier is that, um, you know, Cap realizes that he can't trust authority. And you see that in Avengers, too, Mm -hmm. where... um, uh, Shield is lying to them about this weapons program. Yeah, Nick Fury is lying to them. Yeah, yeah. And then you see that Shield has been compromised in Winter right. Soldier by Hydra. Mm-hmm. So, so Cap is in a position now where he doesn't want to put himself under that kind of authority again. Oh yeah. So I think it makes I think it like once I like sat back and I mean this is the problem with having these movies tell you all the story over years and years as opposed to like reading six issues in an afternoon or something. Um, but the pieces are there for them to have exchanged roles. Mm -hmm. And for Tony, you see the strain because he really doesn't want to do it. Uh, he's just trying to win pepper back. He's trying to keep the Avengers together. Uh, he's doing what he thinks he needs to do. But then at the end of the movie, 
we find out about the death of we find out that uh bucky the winter soldier who cap spends this whole movie trying to protect his best friend he's the guy who was mind controlled and killed tony's parents yeah why why did why did he do that again um to get some super soldier serum to steal some super soldier serum that was used in the winter soldier program oh okay yeah um yeah and that was and and i hadn't even uh prepared to talk about this but that's something that was that was i think really interesting um is the way in which you have these two figures one of basically one of uh capitalism uh-huh. one of free market and then one of who basically has like a conservative agenda one of of you know government control and bureaucracy and they basically switch sides mm-hmm. switch opinions mm-hmm. um and i think that you're told totally <laughs> if you can hear that click clicking that's my dog Is that a, oh yeah Walking, walking on the roof above us <laughs> um which i thought which i think you're right and i and i think that's totally true it's it's all there because we spend so much time with all these movies focusing on who are the new characters that they're introducing um what are the plot points that they need to get through in order to get to these other bigger plot points right but we forget that a lot of this is character development mm-hmm. you know and and you forget that the winter soldier the Winter Soldier is essentially a movie about how Captain America can't trust anybody. Right. And the thing, here's the other thing, here's the other reason I didn't like Winter Soldier, is like the big twist, the the Bucky reveal that his best friend has also been around all these years and survived and didn't die in World War II. Mm-hmm. I mean, I already knew that from the comics. <laughs> so, you know, and that had been a, pre- a relatively recent storyline. So it wasn't, as soon as they announced that title of the movie... I know who this yeah, is. Yeah, you know, you know what's going to happen, and mm-hmm. so it really kind of deflated the whole movie for me because you're everything else is predictable, and then that's predictable too. And the fight scenes aren't particularly exciting. It was shot in sort of a dark, handheld, gritty way. I mean, this movie, the the introductory stuff where they're fighting these terrorist guys, that is kind of shot in the way of Winter Soldier, and then it moves into a much smoother, more acrobatic style. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was kind of an interesting... I don't know. I, it's, it feels like that was on purpose to kind of move you out of the feel of a Captain America movie and then into this bigger spectacle. Yeah. Um, so I thought it was, like, extremely well shot. Um, oh, yeah. I thought it was really well directed. I just absolutely love this movie. Um, I have one... I have two quibbles with it one is the use of the futura font whenever they went whenever they go to a new location um because that's like a very you know wes anderson yeah twee hipster it's the wes Wes anderson font right and it's just the feet so the feeling of that versus like one of these you know mono space military type fonts that you know when you get like the the click digital clicking noises and it like types across the screen and it tells you yeah. like where you are above the base, you know? Um, and that's sort of played out as well, but that font didn't really seem like it fit in the movie. It so it doesn't fit. It's a really, I mean, it's, very, it's, it's easy choice. to overlook, but it's a really, it's jarring to like be like, what is this? Like some sort of like 
strange indie movie. It's, it's, it's yeah. Like, it's 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 too stylized. It's the for... only it's the only choice in the movie that feels weird. Yeah. Um. And the other thing that we discussed the other night is this like immensely ironic plot hole mm-hmm. of the resolution of the movie, where again, spoilers. Bucky decides he's going to go under ice in Wakanda with new character, the black Panther, who is awesome because he's like, I have this programming in my brain and I can be set off as a weapon. And so until we figure out how to wipe my old brain, I need to go into suspended animation. Mm -hmm. And of course, an hour earlier, we have Tony Stark walk on stage at MIT saying, so I invented a memory wiping thing and I decided not to use it to clear out the memories of my failures with my parents because you can't really get rid of the past, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's like this beautiful, bittersweet moment around Tony. I mean, this whole movie is like about Tony being just like contemplating his life and thinking about his failures. You know, you're right. This is more of an Iron Man movie than it is a Captain America movie. It it really, emotionally it is. Yeah. Because Captain America... He feels the same way through the whole movie. Right. He doesn't have to make any real... He's He knows what he wants. He knows who he is. Mm-hmm. And that's what Captain America is, though. You know, he knows who he is. He knows what he's supposed to do. He's the guy you know is going to do the right thing. Mm. Um, and it doesn't feel super problematic that he chooses to defend Bucky because, you know, loyalty. That's mm-hmm. a quality. You know, that's it just goes back to this primal quality of loyalty and friendship. And if he thinks there's a possibility... Bucky, the Bucky he knows could still be in there. He has to give him a chance. So, devil's advocate here. Yeah. What? Um, because I didn't. I mean, I I spent the past week thinking about how this is an Avengers movie, but it's true. It's a it's an Iron Man movie. You have this is the third Captain America movie. You have a character whose main draw, his main characteristic, is that he's so steadfast. Right. Um. How? First of all. How can you do that? How could you have a movie successfully where the main character doesn't change? What did they do to make that successful? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm trying to think about it like that. Where, because we enjoy these movies, sure. But essentially, at the heart of these Captain America movies is a character who does doesn't change, right. Right. You know, unless the main change is that Captain America realizes that the institutions that he's aligned himself with. Uh, are no longer trustworthy. Well, I think the yeah, I think it's the, I think the arc of Captain or that the America. The world that he lives in is so different from the world that birthed him. That's exactly it. I think the arc of these movies is is um, contrasting. I mean, I think you really have to go back to the first Captain America movie. Mm-hmm. You know, where he's marching off to fight Hitler and the Red Skull, and it's very clear who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. You know, the lines, it's the greatest conflict in in modern history. The lines could not be more clear about who's good and who's bad mm-hmm. and what everyone needs to do and following orders and all that stuff. You know, it's it's the definition of a simpler time. And in these movies, yeah. we see like, well, there's all this civilian fallout and we have aliens attacking us and creatures from other planets and all this crazy shit that we never expected. And how do we as human beings with, you know, the almost 200 countries in the UN, how can we all agree on what to do? And so it becomes like immensely more complicated. Uh, everything is corrupted, like the high with Hydra taking over shield, uh, shield itself is keeping secrets. So you go from this, this very clear cut battle and test of allegiance and loyalty and so on these like classic, um, just these classic 
val- wartime values. And these movies, you know, if you look at Ultron, where everyone is given like this dark vision, Captain America's is looking at the past and seeing um, Agent Carter, his old love, and seeing the world that he left behind. And the, he's in this ballroom, then it disappears. Yeah. And he's not so shaken by it because he's already realized it's gone. Mm-hmm. That's his worst fear is losing that. And he's lost it. And I guess what's that's supposed to be a piece of this movie, too, because he goes to the funeral yeah. of Agent Carter. Yeah. Uh, and then later makes out with her niece, which makes <laughs> which makes it weird. It makes it, it, it makes weird. it weird. So I do think I think actually he is a little bit underserved in this movie in terms of like motivation, in terms of having an arc and changing and dealing with these things because we already feel like he's learned the lesson of the modern world when he decides not to sign because he knows authority is not trustworthy and he has to be the one to make the decisions. You know who I think is the, probably the most underserved character in the whole movie because you're not really, because he's just so one note is uh, uh, Falcon Uh because he's like Captain America's best friend and he's basically just like, whatever you need man i'm i'm on board with it um makes that uh key uh mark Furman joke um well and then he bails on then cap bails on him to go hang out with bucky and like do the final the end game of right, the movie right but even yeah and even, and i think the uh when you think about all the other characters and their motivations as to which side they they go to right um all that makes sense and it all like you know, like War Machine, like he's a he's a military guy, so that makes sense that he would, you know, that he'd align, and also he's Tony's best friend, right? So that, makes so sense. that yeah, yeah. Uh, Black Widow, um, I think uh, she just she she believes in this idea that there needs to be some oversight and that there's been too much chaos, right? And she has well, and she's she's trying to be the diplomat. Right. In the situation and keep yeah. the Avengers together to fight another day. And she does end up um, doing a little double agent work in the movie as well. Right, right, right. So I thought she was played perfectly well. But, yeah, I think you're right. Falcon is is deserved a little bit more attention in this movie. You don't movie. really know why he does what he does. Right. He just kind of does it. Right. And, and I mean, and the, and the defense is because even with War Machine, it's like, yeah, it's because he's Tony's best friend. But also because he's a military man at heart. Right. You know. Right. Yeah. Falcon definitely could have had more attention in this movie. Um, But then they have to deal with like the budding vision Wanda love story. Um, They have to bring in Black Panther, who's his own thing. They have to play out this Captain America, um, young Agent Carter romance, Mm -hmm. which like is whatever, you know. I mean, if you want to inspect it, there definitely are little pieces that are a bit thin. Okay. So... But none of those things bothered me in my viewing of the movie. No, I, I really, really... This is probably... I mean, as someone who didn't... Who wasn't, like, super invested in the Marvel Universe, um, and it just enjoys the movies almost on their own, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I found out about the plots practically after I watched the movies right. as far as how they relate to the comics. Right. Uh, I think the, this is probably my favorite Marvel movie next to guardians of the galaxy as far as like pure enjoyment in watching it. Right. Um, well, it's just the most, the fight scenes, the big fight scene in the middle at the hangar 
where Spider-Man comes in mm-hmm. and Ant-Man I mean the biggest surprise in the movie to me was was Ant-Man becoming Giant-Man <laughs> yeah. which which you know of course he does in the comics mm-hmm. uh but that was totally unexpected and hilarious and he's cruising around like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man <laughs> in slow motion you know just throwing war machine around uh. that was just so comic booky and wonderful to mm-hmm. me like that's what i want out of these movies like i want spider-man swinging around webbing people up cracking jokes like and it was I, one real triumph of this movie to me was the ability to like have that tone and have it exist in the context of well a few scenes later war machine's gonna get shot down and critically injured yeah and all this fun and games you know it's all fun and games until somebody gets hurt right right and it's like it's these friends trying to not hurt each other, but also having this fundamental disagreement, um, which gets very dark by the end of the movie. Uh, and you essentially see Tony trying to kill Bucky. Yeah. And Bucky and Captain America fighting back, trying not to kill Iron Man, who's pulling out every stop he has. And just the the movie's ability to go back and forth from like this sheer exuberant popcorn action to the emotions at the end when you want both of them to win. Mm -hmm. Like you understand the motivations for both of them. You know, it's not like a, a villain's motivations versus a hero's motivations. You have two heroes fighting each other and it it is so, and it doesn't happen. This is the first time I just want to say this one more thing. This is the first time that it happens in one of these movies in an in an authentic way because in Avengers and in Age of Ultron there's a little magic or superpower involved in influencing the characters to get pissed at each other. We see it with Loki's staff in Avengers oh, yeah, yeah, that yeah. starts off that scene where Thor fights the Hulk. Right. Um we see it with uh Scarlet Witch zapping everyone's brains in the second movie. So any conflict that exists in those two movies comes out of this manipulation. But in this movie it's the conflict that it's a natural conflict. And that is what makes it really to me, the most driving of these movies. Um, and the villain, you know, Zemo is interesting too, but he's not Loki. Uh, he's way less of an interesting character to me than Loki or the threat of the distant threat of Thanos and his army of Chitari or whatever. Well, so it's a very different scale of um, conflict. Well, yeah, and Zemo is the kind of villain that fits the conflict in the movie because his conflict is emotional. You know, he's doing this because his family was killed, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, yeah, it's it's a really difficult balancing act. The more you think about it, the more you think that, like... And first, and it's hard to not compare it to Batman versus Superman because a lot of the plot points are essentially the same. But the mm-hmm. way that they're handled is so drastically different um having you have this battle at the at the at the airport or whatever at the hangar um which it it needs to have the right tone where they're they're seriously fighting each other but they're trying not to kill each other but they're also trying to make a point through action and violence and it's like, where do they see all this all this going? Right. You know, and it's like, how do you balance all that? And and the movie succeeds because it's kind of like it's 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 a really interestingly choreographed action sequence, 
There's a lot happening. There's a lot to watch. Uh, they're really kind of pummeling each other, but they're never going so far that they don't think the other person can take it. Um, they're kind of just like proving themselves to each other. Even right. Spider-Man, who... You know, well, he's he's, he's, he's having, literally proving himself. Yeah, and he's out having fun. And I love at the end when he kind of gets knocked out, and Iron Man flies up to him. He's like, you're, and it's like, you're done. You need to chill. This was maybe a bad idea. Me bringing a teenage kid out to like <laughs> fight in this super battle. <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing is, it's just sort of like you know, as an audience member, even with Batman for Superman, you know that the stakes are high because Batman wants to kill Superman. Right. Um, with this, no one wants to kill anybody. Right. So that so you have to, as a director or as a writer, you have to find the stakes, make them clear, in a situation where this where that's not the case at all. Because you have friends fighting friends, you have protagonists fighting protagonists, and there's no antagonist there, so you don't have this built-in tension. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult, and it's done crazy well, like unbelievably so i i it's hard i feel like in all the other avengers movies or all the other marvel movies even it's there aren't as many stakes as there are in this movie yes and to to have the stakes at such a level and then to have it carried out better than i think than any other marvel movie has done next to i mean maybe avengers but avengers is just like the, the stakes are clear there it's like, you know, they got to save the world. Right. Well, and the loss of, um, you know, Agent Coulson dying mm-hmm. and becoming this martyr figure for them, yeah, too. Yeah. Um, and so that's really effective, too, because here's this guy who's been comic relief and you've really enjoyed seeing him in the previous movies. And he, like, has Captain America baseball cards and all this stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that's yeah, that's very effective in that moment. But I think less effective than the conflict in this movie where you know you've really gotten to know these characters and understand their relationships and now like it can in like the second season of a tv drama it can really come into play and you can dig in in ways that you couldn't Mm -hmm. in earlier movies and i really applaud these these movies for doing that i mean i think i think these movies do actually get a lot of good reviews and like the narrative that critics don't take them seriously is probably not the case outside of this particular, uh, you know, nose holding, uh, nose pinching AO Scott review. Um, this movie got really good reviews. I think a lot of people generally liked it. Yeah. It seemed like, it seemed like the initial response was great, but you know, I think these movies deserve a lot of credit that they aren't getting for building these entire worlds mm-hmm. and, you know, accomplishing the feat of having all these different creative teams and yeah. over, you know, billions and billions of dollars of production and telling these stories, having these things exist as isolated successes, but also an overall story thing. And I think the common complaint is that it's too much setup. Mm-hmm. It's too much stringing you along forever. Uh, and I think that is a fair critique of some of these movies that feel a little bit thinner. Yeah. Um, you know, the Thor movies, I think, are not have not been at this this level, and um, especially like the first Hulk movie okay. was a real. It felt like two issues of a five issue series. Yeah, it felt very forced. You know, so there definitely have been movies along the way that didn't feel totally self contained, but none of them have really been bad. And I think most of them have been pretty self-contained. I think that if you look at Civil War, Guardians, uh, Avengers, 
those are all just flat out great movies, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, so I, for me, as a movie watcher and a Marvel fan, uh, I am extremely happy to go see them over and over and over. And I, I will, I, I am super hyped that there's like several more years of them coming to theaters, and I'll just go see them forever, man. It's this is really, <laughs> I, I don't know if I can express how pleased I am that after growing up reading all these comics from the age of like six that now people are making really just astounding film versions of them. Yeah. And there's like three of them a year and they come out the week of my birthday every year. It's just <laughs> like, I, I feel incredibly grateful to be living in this era uh, of getting to watch all these movies for the first time. And the next two Avengers movies apparently have a combined, uh, which I think that they're probably filming together. Maybe I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. Infinity <clears throat> war. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, which I guess they're not being called that anymore. Oh, they're changing the name. Yeah, they they're changing the name. Huh. To War Part One and Part Two, but I guess uh, the combined budget for those, uh, which I was telling you when we were standing in line, yeah, uh, is estimated at around a billion dollars. That's really insane. But that's that's like that's, and and that the uh, four hundred million of that one billion dollars is only going to the directors, screenwriters, and the actors. Yeah. The, well, they work hard. <laughs> what, can, what can I say? I'd rather have it go to them than some like, you know, hedge fund CEO. Yeah. You know, I'd much rather I'd much rather that Robert Downey Jr. can buy himself a new pool. Well, it's crazy because, you know, all these actors, especially the more established actors like Robert Downey Jr. and like Don Cheadle, uh, they are they're now they're part of the MCU and now that's kind of what they're prominently known for. I mean even like Martin Freeman who had like three lines in this movie. Sure. So you uh we now we have Sherlock Holmes and uh and Watson. Yeah. In the MCU. <laughs> that's true. I didn't even think about that. That's kind of wild. Yeah. Well, and yeah, Sherlock Holmes and uh and Doctor Strange. Yeah. Oh man, I hope they get to interact in some kind of Sherlocky, refer- <laughs> I hope there's a reference. That yeah. would be really nice if they get to interact. Um, I guess the things to be excited about. I mean, for me, one of my favorite, the Infinity Gauntlet story from the '80s, where Thanos gets the Infinity Gems and becomes a god mm-hmm. and like fights all the Marvel heroes. I love that story, and it's like not only is it totally epic in terms of the action, it's incredibly psychological and like the ultimate victory over Thanos comes from like the psychological level and from his insecurity. And it's like, it becomes this very grounded human story um, about love and insecurity, even though it's about this big purple alien trying to take over the universe, you know, (laughs) and it feels a lot more um, effective than, some some of these crazy villains don't seem to have great motivations or, you know, a Doctor Doom type figure who is just a megalomaniac, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. and Thanos is that. But he also has this powerful inner life uh, that really comes up in Infinity Gauntlet and gets us to the end of the gets us to the finale. So I'm tentatively very excited about how Marvel is going to deal with this and bring him in as like the big bad and do this two movie uh scenario i have an idea i have a theory about how the first one is going to end oh yeah and that theory is that you know the vision that tony has in age of ultron where mm-hmm. he sees everyone in space and all of his friends are 
you know, dead. Yeah. They've all been killed. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to be the ending of the first movie. Okay. And that'll be the big cliffhanger. And then the second movie will be um, something because in the comics, the main cosmic figures who are fighting Thanos are like Silver Surfer and Adam Warlock. They can't have Silver Surfer because he's owned by Fox and Adam Warlock hasn't been introduced. I don't know if he will be. Um, People are saying that they think that the MCU is going to set up Adam Warlock as um, Star-Lord's dad. Oh, that'd be interesting. I mean, there's a lot that they could do because this time around they gave the Vision the mind gem, which is not true in the comics. They're going to introduce um, the modern Captain Marvel, uh, who's a woman and not the 70s Jim Starlin one. Uh, And Jim Starlin was the guy who wrote these Thanos stories in the first place. Um, So, And, of course, Fantastic Four can't be in it. So there's like... uh, a lot going on. I mean, they have to do sort of this weird Frankenstein revision of it. Uh, although I think the civil war plot in the comics from a few years ago is pretty bad. And the way that they did it in this movie, like one of the neat elements was, um, Tony bringing on Spider-Man, which is something that happens in the comics. He gets Peter Parker to like reveal his identity and sign up for the hero registration act. And that's what civil war is all about is the heroes registering with the government. Oh, right. right, right. Uh, and he gives Spider-Man like a new metal suit. And I thought it was very clever that in this one, he brings Spider-Man in and he gives him like his Spider-Man suit mm-hmm. and some new technology um, that kind of brings him up from this like kid with goggles, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it's like, it's a very clever nod without rehashing any of the bad ideas from the comics, which is like the opposite of what usually happens in these movies where um, they screw, like especially Batman versus Superman, where they brought in like a lot of imagery from the comics, but none of the actual interesting dynamics or plot devices. Yeah. Do you think that, so um, I, I have two questions. One is that, uh, I'll preface this by saying I'm really excited about the new Spider-Man movie, not only because he's an awesome character in Civil War, but because uh, the upcoming uh, Disney Spider-Man movie is directed by John Watts, who um, is another one of those unknown directors. Mm -hmm. The last thing he directed was a movie called Cop Car, which I think I've talked about before. Yeah. um, With Kevin Bacon. And it's just a, a fucking awesome, like, little movie mm-hmm. little genre movie but it's just it's great and i think that maybe what is the appeal is that it two of the main characters in cop car are eight-year-olds mm. and so and for like a, a kind of dark genre movie they're written really written and directed really well mm-hmm. they're really the dynamic eight-year-old characters which is probably an appeal to like have a younger spider-man but do you think that the Spider-Man movie is going to be another origin or is it's going to pick up? No, it's going to it's not going to be an origin. Okay. It's going to pick up. They're going to have it be the status of this movie where he's been Spider-Man for 6 months, Uncle Ben is dead, so on. Yeah, okay. Uh which I think is the right thing to do. And the thing I never understood about the Spider-Man reboot was like why not just pick up and tell more Spider-Man stories? Like the whole problem with Amazing Spider-Man, I mean, you know, it was the first 45 minutes or a rehash mm-hmm. of this origin story that had oh, been yeah. told in a movie 10 years earlier, you know, or 12 years or whatever it was, but like not a long time, like not long enough that you couldn't go rent it before you go, you know, 
you're also talking about the most, you know, some of the most well-known fictional characters in the world. Mm-hmm. No, everybody knows what Spider-Man's motivations are. Yeah. We don't need to do another origin story. Right. Um, and I think these movies, you know, as more and more of them come out, they they seem less preoccupied with doing reboots, maybe, and doing origin stories again, and more about, like with Star Wars, bringing in a new generation of characters, um, continuing the story as a, and continuing the legacy, just freshening it up, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, starting from scratch again. Yeah. So that's good. It did seem like that was something that just Hollywood producers somehow couldn't get their minds around people understanding that superheroes existed and you have to explain everything, you know? Um, but I don't know my gripe with the two amazing Spider-Man movies. You know, I thought Mark Webb directed them fine. I thought Mm -hmm. the actors were excellent, had great chemistry. This, the dialogue was good. They just had really shitty villains and bad scripts. Mm -hmm. And it really just came down to, um, like I know for a fact that amazing Spider-Man had a lot of stuff edited out yeah. that would have explained gone more into his parents and the experiments and like where Spider-Man came from out of his dad's research yeah. and how he's connected to the lizard. And some of that stuff is in the trailers and it's hinted at. And then the movie just chops it all up and you just get a dumb battle with the lizard who's mm-hmm. trying to turn the world into lizards for some reason, you know, <laughs> and same thing with Electro where he's just this guy who decides like, Oh, I hate Spider-Man. And then Harry Osborn all of a sudden after like having no contact with Peter is like, Peter, I know you're Spider-Man. Give me your powers. And Peter's like, nah, bro. And he's like, I hate you. I'm going to kill you. And, you know, it's just like villains with bad motivations are what really make or break these movies. Mm-hmm. And that was like my gripe with Thor too, as well. You have this character, this race of characters who sort of make sense, the dark elves or whatever. Um, and it's fine. And it's like, it works in the context of like, if you were reading a Thor comic book, you'd be like, this is cool. They seem cool. They seem like powerful and dark and shit. That's fine. Uh, but in the context of the movie, you're like, I'm not sure why I need to care about this. And they spend so much time with Loki, uh, kind of who's great, but a distraction essentially toward making the villain a little bit more, uh, relevant, I guess. Mm. Oh, I, I haven't seen the second, the second Thor movie. I thought the, the first Thor movie was, I didn't like it very much. Okay. I mean, the second one's better and I, I think he's a great Thor. I think, uh, I think all the Asgard, all the Asgard stuff is totally awesome. Yeah. I really love it. Like the more cosmic or the more far out Marvel stuff gets, the more I like it, I think. But the villain is just like kind of a dumb villain and it really makes the movie fall flat. Yeah. You know, uh, I think, I don't know. It's hard not to put that on, on, on directors because I feel like as much as Marvel gets gets a lot of shit for being like directed by committee, mm-hmm. sometimes the the choices that they make for directors are so strange. You know, uh, the the third Thor movie is being directed by uh, Taika Waititi, who did the last movie he did was What We Do in the Shadows. Well, yeah. he did a, he did another movie called The Hunt for Wilder People, which I think is just now coming out and it's going around festivals. But you know, yeah, like he's he's a kind of a comedy director like a almost like a like a, a dramedy director he directs small indie movies and yeah they're trusting well, him to direct the like the the the, the thor movie about about the apocalypse <laughs> yeah well and you know i read the um there was a interview with kevin feige or 
however you pronounce mm-hmm. his last name, who's you know the the sort of Marvel Studios head honcho, and he was he was saying like, well, you know, we have this whole apparatus of knowing how to make these movies and being able to support people, so we like to find directors who have interesting ideas and da 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 da, and you know, he gave the sort of like we are we want to work with artists answer, but there's also the answer of you don't have to pay these people as much if yeah. you if you bring someone in like that versus someone who you know is very established like John Favreau. Yeah. Well, I mean, or he was John a Sweden. But John Favreau had never done a big action movie before Iron right. Man. Yeah. You know? Well, now he now yeah, now he's that's kind of his thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, it's true. Uh and I mean Joss Whedon too, like you know, was not known for doing blockbuster movies. Had never mm-hmm. done a movie on that scale before. Um yeah. so I, yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. And I think it probably is easier. I mean, you saw with Edgar Wright leaving Ant-Man, you know, mm-hmm. they do need these movies to fit into a world. And so no matter how crazy they get the, a director to be, they, c- they can't push too far out. That's why it kind of like, I wonder if, I wonder if, um, if, if Ant-Man had been made now, if Edgar Wright would have stayed on, because I feel like they're taking more chances now. It it could be, but I think like a reason that they don't want to bring in someone like, I don't know, like a Robert Zemeckis or a Spielberg or, you know, whatever, one of these real uh, top directors, mm-hmm. you know, is because that person would want to really put his imprint on it or he has his own sort of house style, you know, and they need to keep it in the Marvel universe. Yeah. And somehow it must be easier to do with these, younger indie directors than someone who uh is a dependable blockbuster person yeah i mean i think it's really interesting because and know, also have... i think these movies come out a lot better than a lot of these other uh random summer blockbusters too that are directed by these top yeah. people well i mean you have so you have uh, uh so like i said john watts who's directing the new spider-man uh taika watiti who's directing the new the third thor um, Ryan Coogler, who's directing the new Black Panther, yeah, which and is he's an ex- awesome. he's an exception for sure. Mm-hmm. Bringing someone like that in, who's done, you know, who did Creed and who's done like had a little bit higher of a profile, right? But he, but Creed is the second movie. I mean, that's he's, true. He's that's he's, true. He's basically on the same level as, um, I mean, he like granted his he, what he did was a bit more Oscar bait. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, it's a Rocky movie. Right. You know, I mean, it's a big movie. But, I mean, it's not even, Jurassic World, <clears throat> but it's a big right. movie. Um, I just, I think I really, the only gripe that I have about the Russo brothers doing the next two Avenger movies is mm-hmm. that it's kind of like, I really like these action franchises that are willing to hand over the franchise to a new director to get a new interpretation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm thinking especially of like the Mission Impossible movies, which are almost like every Mission Impossible movie, uh, Impossible movie is basically like, okay, we have this like really simple plot, but we're going to hand it to a new director to see what they're going to do with it. And right. It all It's always like surprising and awesome. And every movie feels, feels kind of different, but it all fits. And like, I mean, the Mission Impossible movies, it's like, you know, you have J.J. Abrams, and John Woo, and uh, um, what's his face? He used to it was the the guy Didn't who directed Brad Bird. Brad Bird, yeah, yeah. Which that movie is the Mission Impossible Four is fucking awesome. Yeah, it's great. Uh, even Mission Impossible Five is awesome too, and that was done by uh, the dude who did whatever uh, um, the kind of boring uh, 
uh, Tom Cruise movie with Werner Herzog in it, which I can't remember at this moment. Um, anyway, I f- totally forget his name, but Mission Impossible 5 is awesome. And then uh, and Brian De Palma did the first Mission Impossible movie, which is crazy. Yeah. Brian De Palma isn't an action director, and it's kind of not an action movie in a lot of ways. But uh, I like that idea, and I kind of wish that, that would be more the case yeah. with some of these movies. Yeah. Um, in the same way that, the, it, that it is with Star Wars, you know. And I wish they almost had done with Star Trek too, which is like, don't have J.J. Abrams do the second one. Give mm-hmm. it to another director. I love these ideas that these because if we're if we're gonna be in this world of franchises now, if this is the new norm yeah. where we're not seeing original things anymore, we're basically just our whole our whole movie going experience are are these portioned out serialized ideas. Then the least that we can do is have all of these different basic stories interpreted by different directors right well you know i disagree and i think with um most of these marvel franchises i mean thor one and two were different directors i think yeah who did who did the second one uh it was some folks who did like game of thrones episodes i think uh and well so guardians 2 is gonna be the same guy who did guardians 1 and same with the ant-man sequel um, yeah, that's you know what, and I'll say this straight up. I enjoyed Ant Man, but I think that he is probably the most boring director in the whole franchise, mm-hmm. in the whole in the whole Marvel universe. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think he's a good director. Very, uh, he's a he's a very competent director. He's a sure. he's a workmanlike director. Right. I mean, you could see all the parts. You know, there's all the scenes in that movie that which were like you know clearly like classic Edgar Wright scenes, yeah. and he didn't film them like Edgar Wright scenes. And mm-hmm. you're watching it thinking, well, I mean. You could see how the Egg Wright version of this would have been better. I don't know where they got, like, why they hired him out of anybody. It's the Peyton Reed. Yeah. Uh, the last movie that he did was, what, The Yes Man with with Jim Carrey? Right. And you're just like, where did they, like, why did they even consider him in the first place? Like, where did right. this guy come from that they're like, oh, yeah, he should direct this action movie? Yeah, totally. <laughs> and that was one where I thought that was, like, if Thor 2 was, like, a three-star movie, I thought Ant-Man was, like three and a half you mm-hmm. know i thought it was very good it could have been better yeah um but i'm also like a paul rudd fanboy and thought he was amazing well that's what i was saying after um after civil war is uh i was almost disappointed that i, I re- what i really enjoyed is that paul rudd was being paul rudd in civil war right you, you want know? as much as possible right and in ant-man he's i mean he's 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 charming in ant-man but he's a little more serious. He's not as jokey. Right. And the comic relief in Ant-Man is uh one of his his like one of his crew. Yeah, Michael Michael Peña. Michael Peña, yeah. Exactly. Um and those scenes too are like total Edgar Wright and you can see how the Edgar Wright version, you can imagine it in your head. You can mm-hmm. see it so clearly of like how it would be better. Yeah. Um but you know with the Russo brothers, I think they you know Winter Soldier was clearly a genre exercise. But Civil War is like mainline, you know, like you said, Avengers 3, mainline Marvel. Yeah. And I was really heartened to see that they could handle it and that they could pull it off so effectively Mm -hmm. and in a better way than Whedon did on uh, Ultron, which I know, like, had a lot of debate between studio folks about, like, what scenes to put in and all this extra Mm -hmm. stuff. And that was a movie trying to, like, accomplish too many things, probably. Yeah. Um, but yeah. this movie, I thought, tried to accomplish just the right amount of things, 
didn't have any infinity gem stuff in it for one. Not really. No. Didn't really set up a whole. Didn't set up any like extra stuff beyond the next Avengers thing mm-hmm. or the next you know Cap going underground or whatever. Uh, and Iron Man just being like bored and not having another movie to go to. But um, I am super hyped now for the Infinity War movies. I was like really terrified about them before because I thought like, well, I really didn't like the tone of of uh, Winter Soldier. So this is like the make or break thing for me continuing to care about these movies. So I'm very pleased that I can continue to be excited <laughs> about them. So does that mean that... Uh... Is is Captain America Civil War? Is that the end of Phase Two? No, I think. Well, I think aren't we in Phase Three now? I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know because but, what I was thinking was, you know, you have what I was thinking was Phase Two is this time when you're introducing a bunch of new characters, but all of these introductory movies are um, sp- genre spins. Yeah. So you have, you know, the the seventies spy movie with Winter Soldier, you have the heist movie with Ant Man. Mm-hmm. Uh Doctor Strange seems to be like this sort of like late seventies, early eighties, like almost like psychological like horror genre kind of like a super genre movie. Mm-hmm. Um like a, almost like a a B movie like sci fi kind yeah, of Yeah, I hope so. Um and the previews look awesome. Yeah. Uh, but it almost felt like stage two is like, okay, we've established the universe. We have a plan for where it's going. This is like the time when we're sort of like finding a tone. Right. And all of these different characters get to sort of like establish their tone and stuff like that. Totally. Um, so that's why I'm thinking like maybe maybe we're still in the middle of phase two or maybe we're not. Who knows? Maybe maybe it's not as well. I think like that. you know I think after Infinity War I'd have to look at the schedule. I think Captain the Captain Marvel movie is supposed to come after Infinity War, but I think that's really going to be the end of the book for uh, probably a lot of these actors in terms of um, Robert Downey Jr. playing Iron Man and yeah. so on. There's no plans for another Iron Man movie. Um, he said he wants to do one. Yeah, well, that's good. I mean, because there was talk a few years ago about everyone's contracts running out, but now it seems like everyone is on board. I mean, we are going to get to the point where, I mean, it's 2016. Infinity War 2 comes out in 2019. You know, I mean, eventually, I don't know if someone can play Iron Man or Captain America for 20 years, you know, and just be digitally, have their age digitally reduced. Right, exactly. There has to be an end. Yeah, eventually you have to have some closure. And I think... I think Infinity War will be that and that, you know, then they can do whatever they end up doing. I mean, certainly with Spider-Man, they cast an an extremely young actor so that they can try and do a bunch of movies with him being Mm -hmm. a teenager instead of like, well, he looks too old now. We have to move him into college. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It does feel um, I mean, even I was thinking about this when I was watching Robert Downey Jr. was like the dude's in his I think he's in his early 50s now. Yeah, you know, it's like he looks good, and he's obviously in shape. Well, and there's a scene where he's like digitally de-aged too. To be right, like, that was so weird. To be very young, that's really crazy. He's looking like a um, yeah, what's an old like like less than zero Robert Downey Jr. Um, yeah, that was funny. I mean, looking at it, like they have, it's kind of like that thing where. It was it was better than what they were doing with Paul Walker in the Fast and Furious. Movie. Oh yeah, well it was very like Uncanny Valley for me, like we were talking about the other day. Yeah, because you it's like who because you know it's fake. 
Oh yeah. You know, and it's like this is very surreal to be watching this like digitally edited human who still looks like a, a human standing there. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's not a CGI version, but it's a CGI edit of an actual filmed person. Right. Which is really weird. It's it's better it's better than um super young Jeff Bridges in Tron Legacy. Okay. Did you ever see that? No. Oh, I I I really like that movie. I think okay. it's a really cool the sound the, the Daft Punk soundtrack is fucking awesome. Yeah. Um but yeah, they have you know, cuz the whole story is that uh Jeff Bridges character gets stuck in the computer and um there's like the Jeff Bridges character and then there's Clue who is a computer program who is the young Jeff Bridges. Mm. And so he has to stay that age. Um so you have like basically a totally CGI young Jeff Bridges against old Jeff Bridges. Oh, crazy. Um and they do a pretty good job in that I think that they like they don't really there's no real close-ups or there's only like maybe one, you know, so they keep it at a distance. Yeah. You know, the same thing like what they did with Paul Walker and his brothers and stuff. Um, it's very carefully manipulated. Uh, but this movie is like, they I mean, it's a bargain. They put this, they put young Robert Downey Jr. right in your face. There's a, there's a big close up for a lot of that scene. Yeah. Which is a huge, like they, they take a risk. I think for the most part they pull it off. It's yeah. a, it's a little odd. Yeah. You can, f- it, it is that uncanny Valley feel where you're just like, there's something not quite right about this, but right. Well, and all this technology gets better all the time, I yeah. think, or people get better at using it or mm-hmm. wh- whatever it is. Somehow it ends up looking better every movie. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I'm sure in, in 10 years when we go back and look at it, it's going to seem super dated mm-hmm. in the same way that looking at special effects in the nineties now looks like comical. Yeah. It's true. It probably will. I wonder what. What's of course, then we'll be then we'll be watching everything in 4K though. So it's just like the level of detail will have to be that much stronger. It's all gonna be in virtual reality. Yeah, we're gonna be inside of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's man. I was talking to somebody about this the other day. Of like, should I skip? Because I'm tr- I'm playing through all the PS3 games, PlayStation mm-hmm. 3, and uh, I like to be a few years behind on video games, and I'm just about done with all the ones I want to play. So I'm thinking, okay, well, probably should get a PS4. Time for a PS4. Uh, or should I just wait a year or two and get like the second generation VR? And that, you know, is that going to be the next thing? Like, are we going to abandon screens? Um, I don't think so, because yeah, I don't, I don't get that impression. Yeah. I feel like. I, feel I guess like, it's pretty early to say. It's sort of like uh, it's sort of like comparing, um, you know, ten years ago, comparing Wii to uh, PlayStation. What was it? PlayStation Two at the time. Yeah, and and the first Xbox, uh, where they're different experiences. Mm-hmm. You're they're basically two. They're two different ways of playing a game. You're either looking for. Um, you know, better graphics, uh, more complex gameplay, or you're looking for something that's a bit more uh, as immersive as it could get at the time, considering that you're only in the game through the extent of how you move your hand using this like weird phallic controller. Right. Um, Well, yeah. And I guess the, I guess the other thing too is like how quickly these things will spread out because, you know, it wasn't like when the iPhone came out, 
everyone had a phone, but nobody had a smartphone. So everyone was like, oh, well, let me get this new thing. And then it hit saturation, you know, over several generations. Whereas like everyone has a TV, everyone has a computer. So it's a lot easier to continue to buy games on those existing platforms and get a PS4 to play on your big TV as opposed to buying this entirely new thing that you can't share with your friends. But I don't know. I mean, I do think in the next couple of years it could hit that kind of saturation. If I haven't actually really spent much time looking at it or mm-hmm. playing any of these games or whatever yet, but uh, if they're any good, uh, it seems like it could proliferate really quickly. Well, I also think that you have something like the, the, like the Xbox One is essentially... I think starting to integrate virtual reality games. Oh, okay. Um, because you know, th- there's the uh, there's the Oculus, but I don't think I think that's basically just the beginning of it. You know, it's sort of like when uh, you had the Wii, and it's like, okay, well, here's the standard in body moving games, and then the Xbox 360 came out with the Kinect, right? Know? And it's just like. I think that you're basically going to see these technologies being sort of um, assimilated by the major consoles. So I wouldn't yeah. be surprised. If you oh, yeah. Them. I don't expect some upstart company to take over. Um, I, so I think if you get like a, P- a PS4, yeah. you probably just like plug a VR he- headset into it or something. That makes sense. You know? That makes sense. Yeah. I, mean, I, guess, I guess we'll see. I'm playing. I beat Uncharted 3. Yeah. Uh, which I really enjoyed. Uncharted and, uh, Four just came out. Yeah, I saw that. I'm I'm excited to play that in like three or four years <laughs> by the time I get to it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm I'm cruising through Dead Island, which has become started out like pretty relaxing and chill as you're wandering around this like Hawaii like area, and now I'm like roaming through the sewers and it's it's like I was playing the other day and played about three hours straight and then finished and was just like shaking with adrenaline after mm-hmm. trying to run through the sewers to just finish the stupid level, you know, <laughs> but I'm enjoying that a lot. Yeah. I'm playing, uh, well, I haven't played it as much as I'd like to, but I'm playing, uh, Skyrim, which I yes. basically started. That's well, that's it. like an endless game, right? Yeah. And then I got shadow of Mordor, mm-hmm. which, um, I wish I had known this because I started playing it and I was like, oh, this seems cool, but I barely made it through it at all. And then um, I was asking people about it, people who know a lot more about video games. And I was like, oh, what do you guys think of Shadow of Mordor? Because I found it cheap. I found it for like 10 bucks or something. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, it, it's a great game if you get it on PS4. Right. Because the PS3 version uh, is like so slow that you like, it's practically unplayable. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, fuck, that's awesome. Like, cool. <laughs> yeah. Something to look forward to. Yeah. Well, at least you got it for cheap. I haven't actually experienced that yet, but it's because I've barely played it. So. Yeah. Yeah, that was one that I was really excited about. Um, like, you know, once a year I start reading stuff about video games and get super hyped about them and then don't end up buying those games because, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but that was one I was really excited about and wanted to get a P- when i get a ps4 eventually it's on my list if it's still canon mm-hmm. i mean the interesting thing about trying to be a couple of years behind like not only does it make everything cheaper but you kind of get to see how everything shakes out as far as like their criticisms and response and what yeah. people thought like were the cool games of the year mm-hmm. uh and it's nice to kind of be removed from that and just go through and say which one of these is like a third person zombie game or which yeah. one of these you know which one of these falls into like the two or three 
gaming categories that I always try to play from. Right. I always that's that is something that's a really weird way to think about it because I if I ever go if I'm like if I'm ever just like I feel like playing about video games, I'm gonna go buy something cheap that's used, you know, whatever. And I'm looking through all this like the the rows at like CD Game Exchange, you know, and I'm just like sometimes it's like picking out a movie on Netflix and I end up scrolling through Netflix for an hour where I'm just like I, I need to find that title that I know will hit that spot that like that will scratch that itch. Yeah. That, that I, but I can't find it and I'm not sure what it is. Yeah. But as soon as I see it, I'll know it. Well, I always look at like, you know, top 10 lists or, mm-hmm. you know, ask friends or whatever, what they've been playing. And like, I don't wing it at all. I completely just go based on consensus and I'm mm-hmm. sure I'm missing lots of cool indie games and things that are less, critically acclaimed or whatever but you know i've really enjoyed all the things that i've bought that have been like consensus favorites so yeah oh man you probably could have played a lot of video games while you're listening to us talking that's true listen at home <laughs> you I, could have gotten through a, a nice chat i don't know how long that. we've been talking but probably so long that we don't have enough time to talk about anything else yeah or we could wrap it up <laughs> we could wrap it up uh you can you can star us on itunes if you like, always appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, you can tweet tweet to us on the Twitters. Yeah. At PLGM Podcast. And you can also email us if you'd like. It's prettylittlegrownmen at gmail.com. And if you want to be not a fake sponsor but a real sponsor uh, with beverages or any other products you would like to sell uh, to our ever expanding audience of intelligent young people mm-hmm. uh, and old people and people of all ages. Uh, you can shoot us an email as well. Yeah, Pretty Little Liars is coming back. Um, coming like back in uh, June. Yeah, a month or so. Yeah, season seven. Cool. It's gonna. We will probably get to recap one episode, and then my wife is having a baby, <laughs> and then we'll have to. Then we probably won't be able to talk about it for a few weeks as we deal with constant pooping and screaming yeah we'll see what happens you know we're, we're just gonna figure it out as we go along as yeah. you can tell by this episode <laughs> yeah. um we're kind of doing that right now anyway we're just it's just kind of just sort of like whenever we have a chance to sit down and talk and if we have a bunch of stuff to talk about we're gonna do that yeah we had plans to talk about a lot of things in this episode but we never got well, we can to do it. we can do game of thrones next time and then we'll be halfway through the season that's true yeah um and you know the the new Radiohead album I wanted to talk about. Oh yeah, I kind of wanted to talk about the new Beyonce album. Oh, okay, well we could do a music episode. As well. Yeah, I kind of yeah. We, there's so many. There's so much music. There's a lot. Going on. There's a lot going on. I was listening to Radiohead today, and I'm still really collecting my thoughts because I'm not. I need. I want to listen to it enough times that my inner critic shuts down, and I can actually just try and absorb it a little mm-hmm. bit more. Because now I can't listen to it on headphones or anything without like thinking about it the whole time. Yeah, which is. I, you can't, you can't like, I need to have a real human experience with it before I feel like I can say enough things about it. It's strange. And I, I mean, I, I won't drag this out, but the one thing that I like, you know, we had, we had breakfast on Sunday and then we each went home basically and listened to it. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I just sat on my couch cause Rebe- Rebecca was out. So it was just me by myself. Uh, and I listened to it straight, but it was, I haven't had this experience uh, until this album, which I said on Twitter is I can remember where I was when I heard every single radio album for the first time. Oh, sure. 
Um, it wasn't in order because I didn't listen to Pablo Honey when it came out or anything like that. Um, but uh, this is the first time where I it was hard to not engage with social media while I was listening to it. Yeah, yeah. Where when King of Looms came out, I remember sitting down and just listening to it and not feeling the urge to like see what other people were see- saying about it. Yeah. Where this is the first time where I was just like had to actively keep myself away from social media so that I could listen to it, hopefully in ways that I had previously listened to it. Yeah. Which is not either neither right nor wrong, but I do think that one of the value of this band is being able to engage with, with them in ways that you can't, that's really hard to engage with other other artists. Yeah. No, I think the album encourages, I mean, I think they're a band that encourages active listening. And I think especially these last couple albums where there's not necessarily a lot of catharsis. There's not a lot of sort of obvious riffing or, or choruses or prominent sort of uh, signposts for you to follow mm-hmm. um, with King of Limbs. And now this new album, you have to really be there for the detail and the, uh, the feeling and the nuance. And, you know, I, I think my early impression of this album, it's extremely beautiful. And some of the songs are really great, but I think it actually asks a little too much of us. And there's two or three songs on it that are pretty dull and they don't go anywhere and they don't have choruses. And I mean, that's fine, but they don't have catharsis. The melodies aren't super strong. Mm -hmm. You know, you're listening to a couple minutes where really not a whole lot happens. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, the saving grace of the album compared to the last one is that you don't have any real uh, processing or effects on Tom's voice. The lyrics are seem intensely personal. Mm-hmm. The The emotion of it is really high in a way that was not the case on The King of Limbs. Um, so I think there's a lot to absorb and dive into there. But I also think, you know, it's not an obvious classic album to me. Like there are dull stretches of it Mm -hmm. and Radiohead is this band that always comes out and has that sort of aura of invulnerability. And I think people should take as much time or as little time as they want to review things. I think it doesn't matter if someone waits 10 hours or three weeks, you know, I think the difference is someone being a discerning critic, not the time, but with Radiohead, I think there is the thing of like, needing to get over the aura of like, oh, a new Radiohead album. Like a, It's like listening to a new Beatles album. It's like, how are you supposed to write about it? Mm-hmm. You know, And I do think there's something to be said for how everyone really feels about it in like two weeks from now, where are we still listening to it? You know, Where the glow fades a little bit and we can approach it as we would any other record. I think that's true. And, and I, yeah, and I agree with that. Like, if if you if you can be discerning, then you have superpowers that I don't have. Uh, you know, and notor- like notoriously, the Guardian published a review three hours after it came out. Yeah, and I mean, again, I don't think these. I don't think it's bad. I think you know, if you are someone who, think, I didn't even read the review. Well, right. I mean, that's the thing. It was not written for you and me. Like mm-hmm. that's the thing that doesn't get taken into account when other writers on Twitter are trying to like gripe or shame people about like how to do their jobs. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, you're not the target audience. This review exists for the people who 
need to know information about this album and whether or not they should buy it the day it comes out, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be like the definitive take on whether or not it's good. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't have to get into every single detail. You know, people just need to have a synopsis. It's a t it essentially is like a TV recap yeah. and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it does have a touch of hubris to say, like, I've unpacked everything that Radiohead put into this album over the course of a year or whatever in like three listens, yeah. you know. But if you know the band well and you've heard music before, it's also not exactly this gigantic departure. They're not like using new scales or inventing new instruments. It's a fucking Radiohead album. So, <laughs> you know, there is a level of like, guess what? People go see a movie and then they sit down and they write the review and they turn it in. You know, right. no, people do that for movies every day like no one is like watching the movie five times uh, i was i was that was actually what i thought about when because at first my first response was like are you fucking kidding me this movie there's music this album has been out for three hours at the most if you listen to it front to back as soon as it came out you right. would be able to only listen to it three times right um three and a half times maybe but but then i was like but I've written plenty of movie reviews where I've only seen the movie once. Right. You know. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, like I said, it's it's not going to be the most thorough, discerning review ever. Mm. Uh, but there is a reason for it to exist, um, and certainly there's the reason of trying to have the first headline and get on Google News and you know the business aspect, which is uh, unfortunate, yeah. uh, but is real. And I don't think necessarily means that there. I didn't read that review, but it was in the Guardian, so I assume it wasn't a piece of shit. I assume it was like pretty helpful and a yeah. pretty decent synopsis of the record. I think that's a really good point that I didn't think of is you it's, it's, and it's really hard with this band um, to remember that if you are a big fan, then you aren't the intended audience of these like knee jerk or even just uh, more like synopsis based. First reviews. listen. Type. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, I think that it's it's you're 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 taking it too personally where you're like I don't know exactly how I feel about this yet. I'm still trying to unpack something that I want to unpack that that feels big to me and when you review it 3 hours after it came out, you're belittling my big feelings about this. Right, right. It's like how dare you take something less seriously than I take it. Yeah. Because I'm a true fan. Right. And that's totally fine. But then don't read the review. Boy, yeah. Boycott the review if you object to it, you know. Yeah. Uh, don't need to whine about it. I don't know. I, I think it's, I don't know. I think it's really silly when, I think it's, my opinions on this have changed over the years, of course. But I think it's generally pretty poor form to critique journalists for how they do their jobs. The exception I would make is today, uh, I thought everyone screwed up really, really badly on this uh, yacht story, which we won't get into, but you know, essentially everyone, you know, dozens of journalists reported a fake story yesterday mm -hmm. with no attempt to confirm that it was a real story. And then today it was proven a hoax and yeah. everyone has egg on their face and no one apologized. Like no one wrote in their story. Wow. We really screwed up. We should have reported a little bit harder. Sorry. Every, like the, I think the pitchfork response in their new story today was like, well, everybody fell for this yesterday and we did too. Yeah. And it's like, you should be apologizing to your readers for right. screwing up yes. for a major screw up. And I was pissed about that because I think it lowers the standards of our profession. Mm -hmm. And I can understand why like the first listen review, why people would feel that way about it as well. Um, but I think that serves a different purpose than everyone just 
completely screwing up. Well, right. I, I think that um, the, the reaction to the whole yacht story uh, is, I mean, it really was, uh, I mean, the band got attacked, and I think that they deserved what they got, but um, people were ignoring the fact that I think that a lot of that blame was projected, um, that people felt stupid for for basically shirking their responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they projected a lot of that shame and guilt onto the band who deserved it too. Right. And the band deflected to the media. Right. And of course there were other media people saying, how can you go in on this band and attack them when yesterday you were like, boohoo and you totally believe what they had to say? Like, how can you play it both ways and cash in on yeah. it both ways? And I think the answer is, both things can be bad. The yeah. band screwed up and the journalist screwed up and everyone looks like an asshole. Yeah. I think yeah. that's what it is. But do you think that it's something um, that it's almost the way that people responded uh, and in that the band was primarily attacked, period, and that was the accepted response? Do you think that's more indicative of the fact that we're sort of past the point of no return when it comes to music journalism as actual journalism? That's a great question and a depressing question. I mean, again, like the fact that no one said, no one printed a correction. No one did like the thing that you should do when you get something wrong. Right. You know, everyone, as far, I didn't look at 20 different articles to see, but I saw a lot of updates, like people saying, this band said this, oh, now it's been proven that it's a hoax. Mm -hmm. As if adding an update to an inaccurate story is the same thing as like tracking an evolving story, you know? (laughs) So I think the way people, yeah, I mean, I think that sort of proves the point of like, if people don't even know how to put in a correction or do what would be traditional newspaper magazine journalism to address this screw up, the, the same reasons why they screwed up in the first place are the same reasons why they don't know how to correct it properly, which mm-hmm. is like a lack of fundamental journalism skills. Right. Um, and I think music journalism specifically uh, has a real lack of that foundation. And it's not necessarily anyone's fault, but it's because I think music writers come from so many different places. They come from academia. They come from uh, criticism. You know, they come from... Uh, music industry people who get into writing on the side and become yeah. bloggers as well as doing publicity or band management or whatever. Um, and then you have people who started blogging, who never went to J school, who never worked at a newspaper, right. who went right from blogging and freelancing to working at some website where there's no, you know, the website's five years old and there's no journalism institution, okay. you know, mm-hmm. and all these things are totally reasonable reasons for people not to have this particular skill set. But the fact is, if you're going to write journalistic news and yeah. call yourself a journalist, you should have this skill set. And it's not super complicated. You can read about it, read about how to fact check, read about how to, you know, <laughs> basically the difference between what a lot of people did and what you're supposed to, you're supposed to do is like, mm-hmm. be doubtful, pick up the phone, call and confirm something, you right. know, it's like an extra couple steps. But, uh, I think people just don't have these skills, uh, I can say that because I worked on a school paper in college where we got training from LA times journalists. And I worked at a website doing breaking news where we had a legal team. I had to check in with every day. So, you know, the accuracy of news and 
making sure you cover your bases is something that I had really drilled into me. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I take it very seriously, even though I'm more of a critic now. Uh, But I, again, I think like since people in music writing come from so many different pools, which don't have that background, now you're seeing the fruit of that is that no one knows what they're doing. Well, as someone who comes from that non-journalistic background, I think that what has to come with it is I need to know my boundaries and my role. Mm -hmm. And I, I work for a website that has a news section. I mean, it's, it's clickbait news, but it's, it should be treated journalistically. Right. it, It should have certain standards. And there is no way that if, if, if they came to me and they said, here, Dom, we want you to run our news section. I'd be like, I don't feel remotely qualified to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, because when, when this whole yacht thing became a thing, um, my first response was to essentially believe it. Right. And not only because the band said so, but because so many people were talking about it as if it was true. Right. I mean, it was on Billboard. It was on the LA Times. Like, it was everywhere. This was not like a handful of blogs. Like, everyone just took it completely on faith. But I think that, like, the, the proper response, if I was a trained journalist, would be to doubt it. Because my, as you did, because my first response, the gut response, the instinctual response as a journalist is to say, where is the evidence? Right. Just because the band is saying something doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. Right. Um, well, here, here's the thing. If the band said we got in a van accident or our grandma died or if they said literally anything else, I would have just believed it and mm-hmm. you just report it. Right. Um, and you wouldn't say so-and-so said. You'd say this happened, you know, because you would just believe it. And it's like something that happens in journalism every day where someone tells you something and you report it as a fact and not like as a statement. And mm-hmm. it's like – we are not in a position to do that like New Yorker level fact checking where you call three people to make sure something actually happened, Yeah, you know, and that just can't be expected of modern journalism. And that's not the, it's, it's fine. It is what it is. Mm. Um, but I do think in this case, because they were talking about a sex tape. Well, when a sex tape leaks, it's, it's, it leaks. It's not hard to find. Yeah. You can find it on a message board. You can find it on a torrent site. You, you know, there's like many places where you should be able to look for about two seconds and find this like thing you that the, you want. There's physical evidence. And yeah, and we have had a plethora of these leaks happen in the last few years. And it's like, you know, it's harder, it's harder to not see these things when they come out than to see them almost, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you're just trying to find a news headline about it, some of these sites will just run the photos, whatever it is. Um, and yet in this case, there was nothing. So once I was looking at it and thinking about maybe I should write the story, they used to be a Portland band. So it's sort of relevant to me as a Portland music writer. Uh, once it seemed really clear that there was no video and no one had been able to buy the video and they hadn't commented on the fact that their website was broken for hours and hours, Mm -hmm. then I was like, Oh, this is fake. Yeah. It's gotta be if they, because even even if the website had broken because they threw the site up quickly, they would have commented and said, "Hey, we're our web guys working on this now. We put this up quickly. You know, hang. We do want to do this. Hang, hang in there with us. We'll figure it out. You know, yeah, yeah. there will be some kind of update as opposed to two statements and then nothing for you know eight hours when I wrote a story about it last night. <laughs> so it seemed pretty clear if you took if you paused and weren't in a rush to like put your ten minute blog post up. Uh, if you waited a little bit." It just became really clear that there was no video. 
mm-hmm. and it wasn't coming out because yeah. it didn't exist. Yeah. Uh, I think that the, the, the saddest part about all of this, besides, uh, I don't know, the sort of arrogance of the band doing something that, I don't know. It just, it's uh, just incredibly, it's just gross, arrogant. It's arrogant and gross. And yeah, exactly. Out of touch and, um, desperate. Uh, the 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 saddest part is that i think that when it came down to each publication's story you had they had a decision the people who were writing this or publishing it they had a decision it was either don't say anything because you aren't sure if it's true or not or publish a story well and some people did express doubt and there were a couple headlines with question marks or people said the video has yet to surface da 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 um, so there was a little bit of credulousness, but not nearly enough. And I think the fact that it got picked up so quickly by everybody, um, every, you know, if you, if I'm doing my job and I look around and I see something's on billboard, okay, it's fact. You're going to write it. Yeah. You know, you're going to source billboard. It's fine. Uh, because they have, they and the LA times and everybody else has a certain reputation. Right. And this proved how easy it is to fool everybody, yeah. which is really frightening. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it is sort of this. Uh, you know, people would say we live in a clickbait based economy online, but it's more just like a survival mode where everyone is just kind of. I mean, you experience this at the Oregonian. I see this at at Paste. Uh, any any website that is trying to survive, I think, eventually has to succumb to this idea and. Well, and you're, you know what, and it is, they really took advantage of people because your instinct is not, and even their fans, you know, lots of people commented on their posts and believed it and felt shitty and they put a lot of people in that position. But, you know, your instinct as a journalist or as a person is when someone says something, you believe it, Mm -hmm. you know, and part of journalistic training, and this is something that everyone falls into is like taking a step back and taking every literally everything anyone ever tells you with a grain of salt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because musicians, especially musicians, though they will self-mythologize. They will just make shit up, you know? Mm-hmm. And I've done a couple interviews where I published something and then found out later there was a question of whether that story, as told to me, actually happened, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so it's like, it it's not hard to be in the, to get fooled. It, it happens all the time. Um but all the more reason, all the more reason in this case, like, yeah, to really be more careful. Yeah, and I mean, we're kind of, we're we're avoiding talking about the uh, dire social issue of um, the fact that uh, you know that they lied about something that so many people truly do experience and have trouble being believed about especially right. in, in 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 the music industry which is currently uh incredibly troubled by so many occurrences of sexual assault yeah abuse. Of, of alleged abuse yeah so um yeah i mean I we're think not talking about that we're talking about more from like the the, the ethical the journalistic standpoint yeah. yeah i mean it really sets all that conversation back i mean literally you know, Bethany Cosentino from Best Coast was just on The Daily Show talking about this stuff mm. and talking about the publicist Heathcliff Beru, who was accused by so many people of uh, having been uh, sexually abusive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so literally, this is a conversation that is a tough conversation, making its way to national TV, getting out to a mainstream audience, and all of a sudden this band pulls this bullshit stunt 
um, that essentially makes light of that, that mm-hmm. marginalizes that conversation and those victims. And the timing just couldn't be worse. Yeah. Is really is really they they really did not know what they were doing or just really fucked up. I have I I, I want to believe that that they literally just that they they're just they went about it stupidly because I don't think that I don't think that because the, the the contrary that they did know what they were doing right is malicious right. Well, I think you know I think you just. When you, I think you see here, like how privilege plays out, and you have these overeducated white people doing their like cerebral art project, and you look at their website, and it's talking about like religion and cults and all this like stuff around the band that doesn't exist mm-hmm. that they've just invented as sort of this like world building around their pretentious indie pop band. Yeah, and you have these people who think of everything in this sort of like theoretical way. Uh, because they don't have to engage with it because nothing bad has happened to them, you know, that we know of off the top of our heads, right. you know, uh, but they certainly are not dealing with like sexual violence in mm-hmm. their lives or they would never have done this. Right. That's another thing too, is they, they must not have because yeah, exactly. You just, like, you just would not play lightly with this. Right. Right. Um, and it's like this huge divide between this band who's been around for a while and they're probably in their thirties or whatever versus someone who would be 18 and looking at Tumblr and having like this extremely, uh, thorough understanding of sort of modern, uh, mores and like an education on all this stuff and on feminism and identity politics and all these things. And like, Mm -hmm. you can see how out of touch this band is because they clearly just had no idea uh, as far as we, I can tell that they were going to get hit with this this wave of like retaliation. I don't think so for what all. they did. Yeah, I mean, Miranda Miranda July didn't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Neither did Nick Diamond. Yeah, they're they're, <laughs> they're friends who are participating in uh in this elaborate hoax. Yeah, uh, all well, apparently smart people. Yeah, well, well, and all you know successful white people too who don't necessarily have to deal with these these problems yeah um but anyway that's enough uh ethics and journalism <laughs> and identity politics for one day um thank you for for tuning in for this grab bag uh i do want to revisit radiohead after some more listens and definitely beyonce we could talk about and lots of other stuff so we will return with a new podcast uh in the next uh, week or two yeah uh until next time uh buy our sex tape bitches I know what you're keeping for you now.